Okay. Take three, four. Who would have thought on the 20th episode that we would have the most technical difficulties? We're now an hour. Like, we're now a full hour behind schedule and restarting. So usually we record on a Zoom H5, and it's so straightforward. You just plug in your mics. There's only two channels, nothing to fiddle around with. But I guess our H5s are a hot commodity because all three of them have been lent out or borrowed. So in reality, actually, this episode's equipment is a lot more high tech. It's like some actual (laughs) interface. What we're really saying is that Eugene and I are tech dumb. And we had to set up, you know, more quality equipment and therefore struggled and... Ah, uh, we got through it. Yeah. So we sound, you know, we should audio better. wise, we sound better, but like the tone of our voices now is like, oh my gosh, like, let's just get this over with. Like, that's what we sound like now. I'm going to, I'm going to be extremely professional and work through it. This should be celebratory, you know, big two O. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We made it. Do you, me- do you remember... The first one we did. I was really nervous. Like, even though, you know, back then we didn't even do it, the two of us in person. Yeah. Like, I was in my home and you were in your home. Yeah. And I didn't have to see you or anything, but I was still, like, super nervous. Now I'm not. So that's a big difference. Yeah, this has been a pretty fun experience. Who would have thought 20 episodes? That's, like, what, five months? Yeah. Actually, it seemed like And we didn't miss a single week. Some were late. Some we we were a little bit late, but other than that, it was good. It's pretty crazy. So how's your how is your week shaping up? Um, uneventful so far, but I am excited for tonight. I'm going to this panel discussion with three female journalists, and it's organized by Women in Publishing Society Hong Kong. It's going to be held at the Fringe Club. It's in English. It's in English. Yeah. I don't actually. I'm not familiar with these three journalists. They're not necessarily big names so to speak but I mean I think it's good I don't really go to that many of these things it's interesting because Hong Kong as you know is this melting pot of eastern western culture and eastern media and western media have very different philosophies or just the way that consumers um, expect their media outlets to behave like when it comes to western media you're very much critical of things of people whereas in in Asia, it's like, you don't, you can't really go in on people, I feel. Actually, I think all, I'm not sure because I don't have the information in front of me, but I think all three journalists are invited from abroad. Oh. So they're not local journalists, which is, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, I, I'd be interested in either event. Yeah. Because we don't really get that many of, yeah. I don't know, Hong Kong's a bit weird. We don't really invite yeah. that many people from abroad. Yeah. And actually, I want to say, the reason I'm going is, because a friend of mine who listens to this podcast invited me and she's currently oh, nice. interning at Forbes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me of you meeting Sarah Kim in, in Shanghai that you yeah. never brought up. Yeah, that was great. If you guys aren't familiar with Sarah Kim, we did a story on her and she is an all around, very articulate, very passionate person who, you know, she put on a really dope female focused art show. And I know that, Charisse, I mean, she is like a woman crush for me, and I have no problems with saying that on air. So let me know what I, I wish I could you, hang out you, with her more. Yeah, you WhatsApp me, you're like, Oh, I wish I had something like this to hang out. I with do, I really do. Why is that? I don't 
I don't know what it is. And I, I mean, partially the responsibility is on me that I haven't gone out to find these people, but I don't have that many older female mentors, I guess you could say, or just like people who do the same thing I do, but are further along yeah. down the path. And I think there's a lot of value in that because I know you say a lot, like not to assume young people can't do things, but I do still think there's inherent value in speaking to someone who has 10 more years of experience than you or however many. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's totally valid. What about you? What's going on with you? It's been an anxiety riddled week, but I don't know why. It's just been like a ton of stuff. Do you think it's a more of a boiling over than a specific incident that occurred? Boiling over. I kind of like the feeling low key, like the feeling of anxiety. Anyone listening to this pod right now who has ever experienced anxiety is like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I was thinking about this and like, cause I was pretty anxious last, let's say yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. Day before. And I was like, mm, maybe it's just a good challenge to figure out how to reduce the anxiety. That's the only way I can really look at it. I mean, that's the only way I can really like approach problems is like figuring it out. Like I think there's the challenge and the anxiety are kind of two in the same for me. It's like, there's so many things that are going on right now. How do you make sure you're doing things at a high level, working through a challenge, not getting consumed with the fact that you don't know all the answers. I've said that many times before. So I don't know. I'm uh I feel a lot better this week, although I haven't been sleeping as well. It's fine. You're actually stepping away um next week. Well, I say stepping away, I mean you're going out of town. Yeah. And sometimes I like it when people just kind of thrust me into these opportunities. I I haven't done a ton of research, but I got um invited by a friend to go to this. <laughs> I don't even know how to I don't I don't know if it's a design retreat or something. It's in the middle of Japan. <laughs> I'm just going and meeting people that are in design and publishing as well. And I'm not going to do too much research about it. Just go into it. And I think that that's kind of the, the, I think in this day and age when everyone has access to everything, oh, movies coming out, let me do reviews. Oh, I need to buy something. Let me read through five pages of Amazon reviews. Like I just want to go into something and be surprised because I tend to not do that. Yeah. Based off of the kind of person that you are. Yeah. I think that'll be good for you. Yeah. I look forward to having you come back and I hope that when you return, you are less filled with anxiety and I might not be here for next week's uh, making it up. So you might have to get someone to step in. I think that's going to be the case, but undecided yet about who special guest, special guest. I don't know. Tune in next week to find out. (laughs) It's like our teaser. This is our first teaser. All right. Okay, do I get into it? Let's get into it. Oh, man, let's hope my... uh, Did it load? Give me one second. Ten minutes later, Eugene's Google Doc is still loading. It's been a bad tech day. Google Drive on my phone takes forever to load. Anyways, it's finally loaded. My topic I want to go in-depth on this week is an article by Matt Welty of Complex on why sneaker culture should be taught in schools. So in this article by Matt Welty of Complex, he makes the argument of why sneaker culture should be part of a school curriculum. So this op-ed was School as in university? Mm, He doesn't really define it. Although the context of this is in university. So this op-ed came about through a course he taught on sports marketing with footwear analysis and somewhat of a business of sneaker celebrity, Matt Powell. If you're not familiar with Matt Powell, he gives a lot of sharp takes on the current state of kind of athletic 
footwear and just sneakers in general through a lot of objective analysis, like stats, sales, numbers, et cetera. So Matt's argument is that. Welty. Yeah. They're both Matt. Oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) Just saying. Okay. Welty's argument. Yeah. Matt Welty's argument begins with a highlight of the pre-internet era of sneakers and how it used to be a lot more exclusive. Mm-hmm. But now, as it enters mainstream, it seems as though we've kind of forgotten about the past, the history, and the the legacy behind a lot of things that you see now. The whole sneaker industry has changed significantly from being a subculture to really a part of mainstream culture, thanks in large part to stuff like celebrity endorsement deals. Can I interject here yes. to mention Bella Hadid? Sure. Did you watch that video? What is it? The meme? Which one is it? If homeboy comes through with these. Oh, no, I didn't see it. Wait, seriously? Okay. (laughs) Please, please uh, enlighten me. Uh, The thing is, like, if I see Bella Hadid on my feed, I'm not clicking in. But, okay, you must, honestly, every other person, sorry, that's an assumption, but I think, well, 90% of people who listen to this podcast know what I'm talking about right now. But for your sake, you know. I'll, I'll explain this to you. I don't okay. know if I should feel disappointed in myself. Like, I mean, what, I don't know. I'm just surprised because you do consume a ton of media. So you must have really selective I have, vision. I do. Because it's it was there, I swear, like in your timelines. I'm sure and it was. Just, I'm sure it was. Okay. So it's actually also with Complex, like yeah. the same platform that published this article you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. Complex did has the sneaker shopping series, like it's videos. And oh, they did one yeah. with Bell Hadid. And it was... Really cringeworthy. Wait, and this is the one with uh, Jola Puma sneaker shopping. Yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> so anyway, I said I can't believe I'm explaining this to you, but the meme is that at one moment she says she's comparing two shoes, and she says if Homeboy comes through with these, he's gonna like get it, but if he comes through with these, it's gonna be quiet and like insta meme. You know what? I'm cool with it, and I don't mind dirty sneakers, but you better they better be fresh, you okay. know? If Homeboy is coming through with these, right. it's quiet. Yeah, no, right. it's quiet for him. But, <laughs> like, if he comes through in, like, these, yeah. you got some Air Maxes out here, yeah. you got some Jordans, Homeboy is going to, like, get it. I, I can't believe I've... Anyway, it was in a lot of places. The only model-based... I don't even, it's not really a But I mentioned this because you were talking about celebrity endorsements and how it's going mainstream. And I bring this up because this is like exactly the example that you were talking about. Did you hear about on that topic since you've totally derailed the conversation? I did not. It's on topic. (laughs) Did you hear about um, models getting called out for the inability to plank properly? Plank as in the fitness movement? Just like how there's like, there was a Reebok thing where one of the models... And honestly, this shows a great I mean, amount of ignorance on my end. I don't remember which model it was. That's fine. I didn't hear it. And they're like, oh, she's not even planking properly. Anyways. Regardless. I mean, I think that's a bigger problem because that's about fitness. Like if you were doing the Nike Training Club app and the person in the video was doing the movement wrong, then that's potentially dangerous, right? And like not to it's overstate it. Lines. But this is, I did not derail this conversation because you were talking about how Sneaker culture has gone from being small and exclusive to being mainstream and this whole yes. Bella Hadid meme is an example like. of that. That's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm the worst. You're, you're, I'm literally you're the worst. not, but you're just, it's, it's funny 
Anyway, continue. My own filter bubble is pretty strong. All right, Welty. All right, back on track. Welty, what does so, he say? Welty goes on to mention that there's a lack of focus on the foundational elements of sneaker culture as in the last few years, as everyone knows, there's been a race to pump out SEO-friendly content and dominate people's attention spans. So it's less about the process, the history. It's more about, hey, end product, end product, end product. So this quick change from subculture with gatekeepers of knowledge to mainstream culture where nobody's taking the lead in the educational department needs to change, according to Matt Welty. He ends off with, it's just going to require us to do our part, whether it's writing a story, talking about it in a YouTube video, or lecturing a classroom full of people wanting to learn from us. In the course that he taught, or I think it was like one class, right, that he did a guest speaking session at. But anyway, the students were genuinely interested in the additional knowledge that he wanted to share. Like he wasn't sure, like, oh, how deep should I go into history and details and stuff that we don't really talk about a lot. But he found that when he was present in that classroom, they were excited by that stuff. Exactly. And my thoughts on it, and, you know, when this first came out, I actually had some things to say, like it came very naturally on Twitter. I just like fired off a few tweets. And for me, sneaker culture's most interesting thing is how closely affiliated it is with youth culture. Mm. And as you know, there's a lot of sort of pivotal moments within youth culture that can help define or potentially define people as they grow older. It could influence society and culture. Things that happen, you know, when you're 18 on a mass level could create movements, beliefs, feelings that could extend well into someone's adult life, right? And I think that is the underlying thing that is being mis not misrepresented, underserved. That's to me what the most interesting thing is. I like honestly, how a shoe is made, I think that's that's already more important than just the final product. But like, why is something popular? I think there's a lot of like psychological and societal learnings that you can derive from sneaker culture because especially now it was big then it's even bigger now but what you're talking about is almost that you're interested in learning from the youth now and how they feel about sneakers as opposed to what wealthy is kind of saying where experts such as himself such as yourself are telling youth about the past i think that but they that's all in the same though. Cause like how people were interacting with sneakers back then is a representation of probably how people think now. Does that make sense? It's like how the youth were sort of discovering, looking for things, you know, like I would say that a lot of people that are still um, relevant within this world of sneaker culture, mm-hmm. I'm throwing out the air quotes, there's a certain psychology behind it that I think is a little bit different than what exists now. And I think that is sort of the interesting part of it. That's the interesting part about it. It's how people are thinking then as it pertained to sneaker culture, as it pertained to youth culture, and why were people thinking that way versus now, why do they approach the same topic from a different angle? And what what does that have to say about society and culture? That's what I'm most interested in. So I always use this example and... I don't like it, but then again, there's so many people that don't care or they actually appreciate it. And that comes down to like how you used to feel if you had a pair of exclusive sneakers on, exclusive slash expensive sneakers on, and you saw someone else that had them. You've actually mentioned the same example in this podcast. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I I bring this up again for people that haven't heard that reference. Yeah. Nowadays, like 
dude, you go to an event and everyone's wearing the same pair of Yeezys or whatever. I do, I do want to push you though more on like, how is this relevant to people who don't care about shoes? I mean, you, that's fine. I mean, no, no, but what you're saying is that you think looking at sneaker culture or what I'm hearing you say is that looking at sneaker culture 10 years ago vs. now can also inform us about greater things in society and culture. Correct. And I want to know what you think that is. I think that, I think that the past, when I look at the past, a lot of it comes down to what sort of cultural movements involve sneakers, right? What are the different things, whether it's skateboarding, whether it's punk, whether it's whatever. I mean, arguably, another whole other topic is like, we've kind of eroded subcultures these days mm-hmm. and there's less of a, a uniform that's associated with things. But I think that if you look a little bit deeper and you start examining beyond the layers, there's like, there's a really fascinating relationship that exists. And people that don't care about sneakers, that's fine. It's like, it's kind of along the lines of people look at Snapchat as this all-encompassing force because it's so impactful in youth culture. What is a tangible version of that? I mean, they're different. A social media network versus a sneaker, right? But I think they, in many ways, are dominating a large part of the youth's mind share. Yeah. That's what I find is interesting. And like when (laughs) I remember in some of the B-roll, I don't remember if it actually made it into the story, but uh, when we did a story on Jason Maiden, we're just like going through China and we're just uh, spitballing and shooting the shit. And he was saying how like, yeah, tech bros are all up in sneakers now because they found out that millennials love them. And like, obviously they wanted a sense of relevance. I'm As in up. tech bros are all up in getting into sneakers themselves. Correct. Because they, they As also As in like they know. themselves are trying to be exactly. bona fide sneakerheads. Exactly. Because they know that's what millennials gravitate towards. Got so it. they want to have that relevance. So it's like, it's almost cool now to go into a meeting. Oh, you got those new shoes, eh? <laughs> like, that's what I mean. I'll, I'll honestly, I can say. It's <laughs> tech bro imitation. Yo, bro, sick Yeezys. Okay. You know what I mean? That's, that's I mean, like, I think it's, I think what's interesting about what you and Welty are suggesting is, in, you know, in full in transparency, a, I get mentioned in the article, although I never knew. <laughs> I, I probably, wasn't even going to say this, that. This probably should have come earlier, and it's not the reason why I picked it, but because I, I actually had a genuine opinion on it. I wasn't even going to bring it up. But I think it's kind of weird if someone read it and like, oh, hey, Eugene's name is in this. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I was going to say, I think what's interesting about your and Walty's suggestion, especially in relation to including talking about sneakers in a school curriculum is the idea that taking a deeper look at this subculture can also inform us and university students or youth about wider things. Like what you're saying is that sneakers is actually a good way to then look at music movements or sports or um, you know, we talked about China last week, like how commodities spread across the globe. I think that's really fascinating because yeah. it's but not just a product. It's not just a material good. Identity is such a big thing that's often associated with fashion. And what is the biggest, most important fashion item, in my opinion? It's not your jacket, your t-shirt. It's the shoes you're wearing. It's a bold statement you're making there. I mean, if you had $500 to spend on something. 500 what? U.S. Let's say okay. You'd probably you'd probably spend it on sneakers, maybe. Yeah, five hundred. Yeah. It would probably be easiest to spend it on sneakers. Do you have a five hundred dollar jacket in mind right now? No. Exactly. Do you know of something that could be five hundred dollars? 
I don't have a five hundred dollars shoe. That's kind of up there. Well, no, but like if you start thinking about resale, but I have two pairs of like $160 shoes that I'm thinking about. Exactly. So that's already cutting into my budget there that yeah. you're giving me. My question to you is like someone that's always been on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. how does sneaker culture relate to anything bigger or does it not? Am I just stretching to make well, this I relevant think, when it's not I actually mean, that relevant I don't, to I mean, I don't, person? I don't think you're stretching. Like I can see your point of view, but I, I definitely think there are a lot of people who would not come around to this argument. Of course not. Who would, who are in other industries or older or even youth who are not that fascinated by shoes. And I'm not, I'm not even going to make the argument that I always make where it's like, oh, shoes are dysfunctional. But I think the argument I make here is that for a lot of people, it's shoes and fashion. They don't think about as intricately tied to identity, but just, you know, do I look good? Yeah. And I'm not trying to undersell it. Like I know everyone does think about their identity to some degree, but I think there's a large number of people out there who, when they put on clothes in the morning, they're just doing it. The yeah, motions. They're just doing the motions. Like this is what I mean, looks my, good. My argument is that if you're not serving it or even trying to serve a different perspective, then obviously there's no ability for you to even go deeper. And I think, so I've just mentioned a kind of neutral outsider view. I think there's an even a section out there of a stronger negative view where it's like, Oh, why waste your time on shoes? And who look at kids who spend a lot of money on shoes and nothing else and think like, Oh, that's a waste. Yeah. Like you don't need this stuff. But I think you need to understand why you're so gravid. I think you need to, un- you need to understand why you're gravitating towards it in the first place to understand what role is playing in your life. And that's a super, that I just heard myself say that it sounds stupid, but it's like, why am I, why am I so drawn to those sneakers? You know, and if you don't dissect why, then you're kind of being pushed and pulled in any different direction. You're basically at the mercy of sneaker brands. Cause if you don't contextualize the importance of something, and this is kind of what it is, like this whole argument is that sneaker culture is sufficiently important to be part of a curriculum. Now let's let's understand why it deserves to be there. I think you're talking about a youth consumer when you in that last bit. And I'm talking about like that consumer's parent. But I think it's all in all, I think it's still relevant, right? Oh no, I do think right? it's relevant. I'm just thinking about like the different Every like you are kind person. of saying like, oh, I want to encourage youth who are going out to buy sneakers to challenge brands to think more thoughtfully about the purchases they're making. And I'm kind of saying Cause you were saying like, you know, what is the outside view? And I think that parents don't even understand why you would spend so much money on an item. And I think even if the, cons- like the youth consumer thinks through it and like explain to that older person, they still wouldn't get it. Like they're not going to understand. What, what's that going to look like in 20 years when the people that are into sneakers now have kids? I don't know. That's interesting. That's exactly it. But right? People change as well. They change, right? But it's part of your, you're growing up. Like you, I could probably be like, yo, what are influential brands that, touched you when you were 17 through 22. I mean, it's true already now because you have peers who have children. Yeah. And, and they're not wearing some bullshit Walmart sneakers. Yeah. Not that, sorry, I, that's- We got to believe ins, that. That's insensitive. Not that Walmart can't make good sneakers. It's more like- What you mean <laughs> is that you have peers who are parents- That are wearing branded sneakers. Were sneakerheads, yeah. same as you, when they were young and like really into this culture. And that is- 
you know, influencing the way they parent. Exactly. Which is interesting to me. I always like to use the argument of coffee consumption in Japan because if they had never created a market for children and coffee, candies, ice cream, whatever, like you probably wouldn't have such a passionate coffee community now. That makes sense. Yes. I'll chalk it up as a win, Charisse. Should we move on? She's deliberating. I want to hear from anyone who listens to this podcast and really is not into sneakers. Yeah. Like you don't own a pair or like you own one pair for the gym and you really cannot see the point of queuing for a shoe. I mean, I don't see the point of queuing either, but I think it's, it's using more it as like, example, but yes, sure. Like yeah. someone who's not could care less yeah. whether you have who's a, not like derisive, but it's just not ever been of interest to you. And I would want to know. What's someone that? who would be more than happy to wear a pair of wooden clogs or a pair of Vapormax or a pair of, I don't know. Does that person exist? I have no idea. Come speak to us. Come find us. I want to talk to you about problems that come with designing notifications on mobile devices. And the kinds of notifications I'm talking about are the push ones that if you enable it or if you don't change your settings, like when your phone is locked, it will send you maybe like a three line message. And depending on what kind of apps you have installed will affect what kind of push notifications you get. But the article in question that we looked at or that we linked to in the briefing was from Neiman Lab. And it's actually pretty interesting. I feel like we should have linked to the original source material instead of the Neiman Lab one, but we'll put it in the show notes. Tell me a little bit about the original source. Yeah. So there was this annual conference held by the Online News Association, and they did a panel discussion with three guests, Pete Brown from the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, and Sasha Corin and Sarah Schmalbach from the Guardian U.S. Mobile Innovation Lab. Now, I haven't listened to the whole audio, but we can make that available. And the topic that they discussed was how news organizations in particular, such as CNN, send push notifications, like what decisions they make and the actual stats of it. So the research itself looks at a three-week period in June and July and looks at how many total notifications these news apps sent. On average, it was about 10 to 11 per day. Mm -hmm. And the big culprit, sorry, my bias already coming through, but the big news, um, the news app that sent the most was CNN MoneyStream. And over three weeks, they sent 234. MoneyStream being obviously very business-centric. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But even CNN sent 229. Yeah. But CNN, in everything, all news related. To compare to that, the least notifications came from Business Insider, which only sent 17 over three weeks, and Reuters, which sent 13. So the reason I picked this is because yeah, I... Yeah, why did you pick this? I recently read this article from The Guardian, um, published early October, and it's called Our Minds Can Be Hijacked. Oh, yeah, yeah, did yeah. Did you read this? I did not, but I, I got sent that by it's pretty two people. Long. It's pretty long. It's a long article. And yeah. what is, this is a reason, I actually picked the Neiman Lab one because that came up in the briefing, but really I want to talk about 
Yeah. It's it's related, but yeah. I really want to talk about this wider subject from the Guardian uh, article. You, yeah, maybe give me a quick preface of that because I think one of the reasons why I wasn't so into it or I wasn't excited mm-hmm. to read it right away is because I kind of felt I knew what it was talking about. Okay, in but terms was, of like, what's yeah. interest? So when you say you knew what it talked about, do you want to tell me what you think it talks about? What I think it talks about is how the mind changes based on notifications, push notifications, um, just basically UX, UI stuff, right? And how we as society and culture are continually under threat and like obviously addicted to tech. I guess that is the, no, I agree that that is the bigger thesis statement and that's like the draw in the title. But what's interesting and different, I think about Mm -hmm. this particular article is that they talked to several former Google, Twitter, Uh, Instagram employees and did decently long interviews with them. And it was about, you know, how did they go about designing these apps? And like, what are their thoughts on the way they designed it at the time vs now when they've left or how has their own relationship to tech changed? And that uh, was the point of interest for me is that we get to speak to the people who designed it themselves. Got it. It's because like, I've also read enough articles about how phones are bad for us and how we're addicted and have dependency. But I am interested in, you know, the people who designed it, which is similar to the Neiman Lab article, like, the people who are behind this thing, like what are their, their decisions? Yeah. What is their thought process yeah. between making this approach? Like what is the person at CNN Moneystream in charge of push notifications thinking when they decide I'm going to send 11 a day, you know? Yeah. And what they, is the fine line between ethics? And yes. That's, I think that's, you know, if, if there was a different way of spinning that article that would have made me more interested then yeah, maybe I would have pursued that. Yeah. But, but that's the thing is like, I'm, I'm going to go for sure, go back and read it. But I think everything you've mentioned there has a lot of interesting points because as much as it's tech, there still is someone behind making conscious decisions. Yeah. Right. Because one of the really interesting things, one of the interesting factoids from that Guardian article is they talked to the guy who designed the pool to load function. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Like how on... Instagram, if you, a lot of apps work this way is instead of immediately loading new content, you have to pull the screen down to load more content. And the guy who designed it said he, you know, he didn't do it intentionally to be addictive, but he agrees that it is similar to a slot machine. Yeah. That pulling and getting like rush from what comes out of it and like I just thought that was fascinating so I wanted to ask you well first of all I wanted to ask you do you change the settings of your apps regarding push notifications yes I know how to do it and it just doesn't bother me so you have everything enabled well that's not entirely true because I do know that (laughs) Nicole got annoyed with the fact I had so many red badges and whatnot she went in like shut them all off and I had to go back in and re in re-engage and uh turns them back on but but in general i don't i just look at it as a as a diary of sorts like a morning diary when i wake up like these are things i missed exit done do you get push notifications from any publications yes i do and it's weird because my settings on my ipad are different from my phone oh that is strange so i mean it's never bothered me to the sense that i needed i've needed to go in and change it and do you feel like the ones you get are necessary no, I wouldn't say they're entirely relevant, to be honest. I would say the ones that 
are on my, actually, you know what? I think my iPad ones are Apple News. And I've selected sort of things to follow, which is why they send it to me. Okay. But in general, like, I don't really feel like it's it's an, a burden. Well, because one of the things I'm interested in, I know that you might not think of it as, as a burden, but talking again about how publishers and the people who are in charge of these things make decisions. I'm interested in how news organizations decide that something is push notification worthy. And in this Neiman Lab article, like in the ONA session, um, Pete Brown says that news organizations, like in interviews, claimed that all of these push pushes were related to quote unquote breaking news. But he also says, Obviously, breaking news is... Up for interpretation. Yes. Yeah. Very up for interpretation based off of news organizations. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a very simple answer to this. It's There's enough historical data to suggest what are things that are deemed important. It doesn't necessarily create a black and white approach to it, but already you've sort of eliminated things that are not of great interest. It's kind of like if someone gives birth to a child, it's like what tier of the celebrity world are they and that is like you know already a way of of managing oh is this is this notification worthy okay do you think it's irresponsible for news organizations to mess around with what they consider breaking news yes and no the the general belief and i i think i've spoken about this or i will speak about this in some capacity is like the balance between news and editorial right Mm -hmm. the reality is that like as much as we think journalism is supposed to be neutral and objective, the very decision to talk about something is an underlying editorial play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like, I, I think that it's a misnomer to look at news and be like, yo, um, it's always, it's something that should always be objective because it's not. Yeah. Right. So no, I completely I, agree. I, I believe that having said that, that they're really, if you're a publication, in this day and age that needs to stand out from everyone else, whether you're big or small startup, legacy publisher, whatever, you need to have a point of view. Your point of view is what's going to be both polarizing, but also enable you to attract, hopefully, paying consumers, uh, people that always come back, right? So I think it's fully within their interest to create the product that best resonates with their users or readers. And knowing that data, they should just pursue it accordingly. So like if I love CNN, right. And you know, they know what, what really makes me tick and they keep blasting me notifications to the point that I'm never even second guessing whether this is annoying or not. I think everyone benefits technically, right? I think so, but I do. Okay. To speak to that, one thing that comes up in um, that Pete Brown talks about is that they have really bad metrics for notifications. For yeah. push notifications. And one of the problems is that maybe their users are satisfied by just glancing at the push and finding that satisfying, but they'll never know that. Like CNN doesn't get feedback knowing that, oh, you saw this and you found it interesting and that was enough for you. Yeah. Because th- there's no way, there's I mean, no there's, way to measure There's that. just got to be a residual metric where it's like, hey, you know what? Let's say we send out 10 times more notifications but we increase traffic and that's obviously but no, the but what i mean is like what you were speaking to is about tailoring to personal experience and they have real difficulty 
finding out what content people are actually interested in and find value in. Correct. But I, I want to circle back for a second to like responsibility of news platforms yeah. and this topic that we've been talking about off the air as well about subjectivity in journalism and not trying to pretend that journalism is objective because one of the push notification examples that comes up is the New York Times sent one that they said was breaking news about how, do you know the book To Kill a Mockingbird? Yes, and it was kind of cut from some schools or something. Uh, no, no, that's not the, so that's, that's, that would be more breaking in my opinion than yeah. what they actually sent, which is that the main character of To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch, has problematic racist views. Like, I do not think that this is breaking, breaking news, news. But they made this argument. So New York Times, like whoever, some of the, one of the content editors made this arg argument that they knew this item was going to be wildly popular and therefore made the decision to send it to all of their readers. But I don't think wildly popular means breaking news. Did it, and that's like irresponsible. Like, <laughs> but I also think that there's a, there's a place where you need to, to start separating like a push notification to me isn't always because it's breaking news. It's maybe because it's of relevance to me. So wait, unless they like- but What if they, they didn't? Like there's no, well, okay, one thing, they don't have the metrics to decide that like Sharice would be interested, Eugene isn't. We're only going to send it to the people who would be interested. Correct. It's sort of a all or nothing but, kind of deal right now. But I guess what I'm getting at is that you're lumping in notifications as breaking news as two in the same. When in reality, it's like, it's- I'm making that two in the same because that's what, according to the study, news organizations I, are saying about themselves. Correct, though. Then you should, then, I, I think, then what you're I think pushing, I, find, I think yeah. what the pushback is, is not to like my opinion on push, no, no. but on the way these news organizations are positioning their notifications. Correct. Like for me, I see push notifications as in part breaking news, but in part, being in front of I, I think the reason this is relevant as well to the topic of subjectivity that you're talking about is that they are pretending or sorry, pretending is a harsh word, but they are claiming that their push notifications are breaking news. These are the words instead of being just things we think you would be interested in and find value in. Got it. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I would say that in general, that push notifications are push notifications, right? Like, how you perceive them is really up to how they're presented. But overall, like I get stuff like, oh, you know what? Let's say I, I'm I'm interested in something soccer or football related, right? And I get a push notification for like, oh, check out this crazy goal scored. Like I won't be mad about it. I think but it's not, the, also not breaking news if it happened yeah. in like the fifth division of like some a Polish league, you know? I think part of the issue that, Pete Brown also does mention is just the tool is not refined, which mm -hmm. is also what we've kind of been talking about is the problem is that publishers don't have a lot of capabilities that allow them to fine tune what they're doing. And users also don't have a lot of capability to give feedback, right? Like there's not much I can do if, you know, there's actually 70% of CNN that I want to see and 30% I don't. There's not yeah. enough, you know, tailoring yeah. that is able to be done here. And one more issue that I did want to talk about with you is this idea that publications are creating content that might just be seen on a lock screen or on, you know, the dock of a computer as opposed to actually driving towards the publication itself. Yeah. And I'm totally fine with that. 
but doesn't. But it doesn't. It doesn't interest me. But at the end of the day, if you could add a level of context just through a uh, a series of notifications. But what? Then- but no. The the reason I bring this up is this idea that maybe these publications are creating value weirdly for the hardware as opposed to value for the publication itself. Correct. But I I think that it's very difficult now to think in those very siloed terms where a successful media company is one that has people on its site. It's but what like if someone value. but what if a reader equates the value to they won't their phone, their you know, their I, subscription. I, I don't I don't I they could, but I think that if you're doing it in a way that has some sort of branding, right? Like I, I guess what you're trying to say is that like they might just see it as a white blank canvas, you know, news update and they don't equate it. Oh, this was from that news source or that news source. Yeah. I don't know because when I look at my notifications, I know exactly where it's coming from, whether it's like the little icon or whatever it may be. Maybe it's because that's the way you th- see things. And I, I'm positing that there are users who find the value in where it comes from, like on their phone conveniently. Yeah. It's an aggregate. It's all not stylized. And so it doesn't matter to them if it's Bloomberg or Business Insider or CNN or Macon. It's just that I'm able to get my information here at this time Yeah, in this way. I think at the end of the day, if that's how they view it, you probably weren't going to be able to monetize them anyways. So like they're a very low level user, which is fine. You know, like you're always going to have, I think there's only like 12 million people that pay for the news in the whole of the United States, right? So like it is what it is, right? But I know for a fact, like when I'm looking at something like, and I get a notification, I know where it's coming from. The icon shows, there's a title, right? And to that point, um, Quartz, Quartz's app, news app was sort of along those lines where it was meant to look like an, a chat app, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine if I, I, I turn on my phone, Oh, you know what? Like this is, these are 10 straight messages from uh, Business Insider and it's contextualizing, oh, the most recent Bitcoin fork or something. I don't know. And I don't need to go in because I've, I've gotten, you know, a pretty good understanding of the whole movement or the whole news piece. I don't think that's a big deal because it's no different than like, why do social media, right? Like these are all offsite things. But at the end of the day, you kind of, the push notification to me is no different than being another social media silo platform, mm. basically. I guess I also picked this because of us trying to get into time-sensitive content. Yeah. And like making also, and news, basically. Yeah, making yeah. a news and also what you and Alex have talked about, like wanting to make something that people come back to. And I, I think I... The in- instinct in me is to fight against that because mm-hmm. I don't want to be like CNN. I don't want to be bombarding people with notifications. I don't see value or I don't see us as bringing value in that way. So No, I, I get it. But I also think that it's a significantly different play for CNN than it is for someone like you're making. Because they're... Like, let's say, let's say we were more on the business insider tip. We're doing less than one notification a day. Right. You know what I mean? Because they did 17 in three weeks, you said. Mm-hmm. Right? But I think you, you need to look at it from the perspective of everyone has a different value derived from those notifications. Right? If the business, whatever business vertical is sending me 200 some, whatever 
push notifications and every single one is of relevance to me, I see that as incredibly valuable. Otherwise, I would either unsubscribe, delete yeah. the app, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's like, be careful of applying your own perspective as the perspective of everyone else because everyone else still has the ability to opt in or out. I like wonder, if, if I think Business Insider's 17 every three weeks is too much, I'll just, I'll can it. Yeah, right? yeah. I know people can opt in, opt out. I just wonder if, thinking about making, I wonder if we have something to give by, I mean, we don't have push notifications right now because we don't have an app. But in the future, is that something that would be of value to people who follow us? And like, if it's not, like what way could we make it of value? I would say that in general, our current quote unquote news products have shown to be valuable. So you just kind of need to take a risk slash slightly extrapolate based on what currently works, right? Mm -hmm. That's all it comes down to. I mean, it. no one, we can speculate about this and, and it's kind of like what I said at the beginning. I don't know if I talked about it or not, but it's just like going out and doing it. Like thinking just because you've read a lot about something that it it's the reality. Like you, we you said this on the, the previous part, one, the yeah. one that didn't take that didn't one. Make it. Yeah. Take one. Yeah. But I, 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 I think that there's, there's always going to be a sort of refinement process, right? If, if Macon was to have an app tomorrow with push notifications, the experience would be different in four weeks time, in four months time, and maybe even in four years time, right? Everything's yeah. changed so quickly. Push notifications. Do you love them or hate them? Let's end off on that. Wait, is this a real question yeah. for me? Yeah. I have most of mine disabled. So you hate them? I, my habits mean that I check things of my own volition at scheduled times. I don't need reminders. You know, that's weird because I wonder if more people are interested in having their apps off than like the notifications off versus having them on because, you know, there's always that argument that, oh, people only use like a handful of apps. Mm-hmm. Like with push notifications, I actually can have 100 apps. And it's kind of like my RSS, right? When something uh, comes up. Yeah. You can be reminded about the existence which of something. Which is interesting because there are certain apps that I never check. But I also wonder, hey, where's the push notification for this? Where's the push notification for this? Right? Like I used to get them more regularly. And right, then right. Since they haven't come up, they've like fallen off the face of the planet. Well, I mean, something that we've discovered about the two of us over time is that we do things most of our habits are different from each other the systems that we have in place yeah are different and mine involves not getting a lot of push notifications so yeah i mute groups that you're in you know which is not about business orgs just about chat yeah all right good place to end things off for the day i'm gonna reach over and and give sharice a pound for our 20th episode yeah i'm a pounder instead of a handshaker or a high fiver because there's just too much room for error depending on it where would, you are in the a world handshake, okay first of all a handshake is not the right thing to do at this moment in time well no i'm just saying in general like if i'm going to greet somebody no no, no but like <laughs> you you would never substitute a handshake for a pound uh yeah you would you would I mean, in a business setting, yeah, you you shake their hand. But if I'm saying bye to someone, I just give them a pound. Because you can't screw up a pound. Whereas, like, if you're going to do a handshake. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
Okay. You know what I, mean? I don't think I've ever done. I don't think I've ever left a meeting and then shook everyone's hands again. Uh, anyway, not the point. I'm good happy job, to give you a pound. Good job to you too, Eugene. We did good. I'm emotionally spent right now, and I'm gonna have to toil, cut this up. All right, let's run into uh, the old outro. You know, we never introduce ourselves anymore. I think it's assumed who we are. What if you're a first-time listener? Well, you'd see in the show notes. <laughs> okay, anyway. I assume if you're a first-time listener, you'd read it before. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, you can visit us at macon.com. There you'll read and listen to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like or hate this podcast, please review us. I think any feedback is good. Um, helps us improve. Figure you can out. also email us. Yeah, email us. We always forget to say that. Yeah. At Sharice at Macon.com and Eugene at Macon.com. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>